0: Hi, it's Chris. A few reminders. First, have you signed up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com? It brightens your Sunday afternoon with my thoughts, show notes, extra questions with guests, and more. This week's bonus question for Major Garrett, when does a Trump White House correspondent sleep? You can sign up at chrisreback.com. Next. If you like the podcast and the newsletter, how about supporting the effort? Become a member of Chris Reback's Conversations. Members get invitations to submit questions for upcoming podcast guests, exclusive early access to select podcasts, access for limited copies of recent guest books, a signed copy of my book, You Won, Now What? And most importantly, you'll be supporting a podcast that I hope you enjoy. Other benefits will be added in the future, and we offer two tiers of membership, patron and superstar. Choose the one that's right for you at chrisreback.com slash membership. Finally, thank you to everyone who takes the time to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Several more of you did, and it makes a big difference. So if you like these conversations, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. Of course, you know my parallel ask. If you don't like the conversations, well, thanks for still listening, but please just forget that whole rate and review thing. So, three items for the checklist. Sign up for the newsletter, become a member, and please rate. Thanks, and now let's get to the podcast. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Think your life is crazy? How would you like to be a White House correspondent with Donald Trump in the Oval Office? After all, if your daily schedule doesn't get turned around multiple times, you always could get cursed or threatened at a campaign rally. In fact, just 60 minutes before my conversation with CBS News Chief White House Correspondent Major Garrett began, news broke that Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein had resigned or was fired. Either way, he was gone. Then, 20 minutes after the recording, Rosenstein was back and meeting with Trump later in the week to figure things out. It's a perfect example of what Garrett means and writes about in his terrific book, Mr. Trump's Wild Ride, The Thrills, Chills, Screams, and Occasional Blackouts of an Extraordinary Presidency. The book is a great ride itself. Major is a professional storyteller, and as you'll hear, he brings new details and drama to the events we all lived through. He brings the reality show to life. What's it really like to cover Donald Trump? Before we begin, though, I want to remind you about our show's terrific sponsor, the Cook Political Report, and a special offer for our listeners to get an 18% discount off all subscriptions. You already know. People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. And for Political Wire listeners, a special offer. You can use the code POLITICALWIRE Wire to get 18% off all subscriptions. Just go to CookPolitical.com and use the code Political Wire. That's one word Political Wire to sign up and get 18% off all subscriptions. That's CookPolitical.com, code Political Wire. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Major Garrett. Major, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time.
1: Great to be with you. Thank you for the time. So
0: as we're talking, the New Yorker's allegation of Brett Kavanaugh's sexual misconduct at Yale broke last night. Michael Avenatti says he's got another woman with complaints. Trump called Kavanaugh a fantastic man and is preparing for a U.N. speech tomorrow. Oh, and about an hour ago, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein was either fired or resigned. At this point, as far as I can tell, it's not fully clear. Just another typical day in the life of a Trump White House correspondent?
1: It is, and that's why the book title, Mr. Trump's Wild Ride, applies vividly, metaphorically, and literally. It's a wild ride, and as I emphasize in the book, it's not a ride that is constructed. It's being constructed or deconstructed almost every single day because of the president's own improvisational ways. The things that, the, that he does and what they inspire or how they depress people who work around him and lead them to do things, leak things, quit, be fired – This wild ride continues somewhat relentlessly if you're a White House correspondent and you are in the front seat, as I frequently am. It can be a stomach-churning experience. I say in the subtitle of the book, The Occasional Blackouts, (laughs) I've I've felt them. I think the country has certain times has felt them. I know senior Republicans on Capitol Hill have felt a sometimes blackout-like experience not knowing what's coming next or feeling the volatility of the Trump presidency as it happens. This is what we're living through. And what I try to capture in the book is just because it seems like we've never done it before and we haven't, doesn't mean it's not real. It's very real. And it's testing our institutions. It's testing our definitions of politics. It's testing what it means and what our expectations are for the presidency itself. And I try to Wrap as much of that thematic frame into the book as I can.
0: No, you, you do. And you, you back it up with examples and you ask a whole bunch of questions, you you know, along those lines. It's really clear that in the book, you're, you're, you are simultaneously recounting, you know, the, the the wild ride, bringing us all inside of it, but also asking, you know, big questions. Some of them I want to, you know, Take and, and ask you directly um, in in later parts of this conversation. Um, h- how close did you come to titling it Mister Garrett's Wild Ride? Because as you say, <laughs>
1: <laughs> well uh, the title works in a couple of ways. If you've ever been to Disneyland in Anaheim, California, you know there's a ride there, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. I loved it as a kid. Lots of people love it, adults and kids. It's obviously a play on that. It's not meant to be disrespectful just to say, this is a wild ride. It's full of thrills and unexpected ups and downs. It also plays off something that became kind of an earworm for me during presidential campaign 16 months on the road all covering republicans which meant it was a big field at first and then the field got smaller and smaller and was dominated by donald trump those around him refer to him in one way and one way only mr trump mr trump mr trump never donald never trump never boss never anything other than mr trump and it struck me like I've never heard anyone in politics be referred to so rigidly in only one way, but he was. And that was part of the psychology of being around Trump, part of what he demanded, part of this sort of deference and respect. And never did I hear anyone ever say anything other than Mr. Trump, even people who had been around him for 20 years and had an informality with him and were comfortable and he was comfortable with them in his presence. Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump. So, the title sort of worked at, a, at those two levels. It's a play on a ride, but it's also reflective of this thing that I'd never heard other than that during but, the campaign.
0: No, you you really. I mean, it's it's a great thing to re- remark on, and you don't hear that. I mean, you know, I've never haven't done that in my professional life. I, I fully assume. Uh, you know being a journalist that everyone up and down the chain for you is on a first name basis, and it does recall you know in some of those uh, debates with Hillary Clinton when she would call him down that had to be purposeful she would she called him donald 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 yes. you know it, yes. it, that had to be you know a, you know a not ineffective way to get under his skin
1: to get under his skin for sure and in my Covering presidential campaigns, I've been fortunate enough and certainly I'm exhausted enough from having covered five. You know, there would be uh, the first name, the last name, all three initials of their name, yeah. lots of different ways, nicknames, uh, all, all, all sorts of variations. Yeah. Sl- slick variation
0: Willie, W, Obama. Right. Yeah, yeah, whatever,
1: right. Yeah, WJC for William for Jefferson Clinton, yeah. you know, Clinton, Bill, you yeah. know, whatever.
0: Uh, Just to be clear.
1: Lots on a theme, never with Trump. Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump. And it kind of got into my head, like, because I I wouldn't do that, except if I had to get his attention. Mm. To get his attention, like, after debates or in any other situation. If you didn't do that, didn't use that particular phrase, he was much less likely to recognize
0: you. Yeah, and, and you, you recount the ways in which he, he did recognize you starting at the story at the very beginning, um, and then other times throughout, uh, you know, you're having covered him. Just to be clear, when you say that you're exhausted from having, you know, you've, you're tired, you've, you've covered five, uh, five of these, five presidencies. Do you mean, uh, five, five presidencies in just the last year? (laughs) Is that what, is that what it feels like?
1: (laughs) Sometimes it feels, uh, like, I won't. I can't say five presidencies in one year, but I have oftentimes used the phrase, uh, and sometimes other White House correspondents and I will jokingly say this to each other, we'll be walking out of the grounds on a Friday. In the summertime, it's still a bit light. In the wintertime, it's dark. But we will sometimes say what a long year last week was. Yeah, yeah. And that's how it feels. <laughs> yeah.
0: No, it feel, and, and as you note, it feels that way to people in your role, and it feels that way to much of the country. Um, and I, I wanna. Ask you about that as well. Um, Let's get into some of the aspects of the book and some of the things that you you report on. One item that really struck me. So we all know the the gist and many of the specifics. From you know, there's there's this other book out there that people could go ahead and read after they've read yours if they want. There's a you know fellow Bob Woodward who's got you know. I
1: think I've heard of him. I've
0: heard whatever. I may have his name wrong. Uh, My apologies (laughs) if I've got the name. But but on page twenty two of your book. You write, the way these guys work around Trump, said one Republican who works regularly with the White House and congressional Republican leaders, it's like they are running a government behind his back. I mean, was it? Is this just been an open secret? I mean, you, that's the gist of, I mean, you capture in one sentence the, the gist of, or one of the key aspects, maybe not the gist, but a key element of, of fear, you know, of the the anonymous op-ed in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Why was more not made of what it seems everyone knew?
1: Because I would put that under the umbrella terminology of coping mechanisms. Oh. Uh, and one of the things that is important to remember about the Trump presidency is, as I say this in the book, for all of its volatility, for all of the things it does that are unpredictable or improvisational or jarring or confusing, even to those who work within the West Wing itself, it still possesses every single one of the presidency's powers. And just because it is so highly unusual and sometimes nerve-wracking doesn't mean It doesn't exist, or it exists at a level where those powers are somehow diluted or made less effective. Those who work around the president know his powers are very pronounced, as they are for every president, and they cope and work around sometimes to forward his agenda in collaboration with the president. A very good example of that is the success and the disciplined effort that started with the president and flowed through the administration on tax reform. And tax cuts but other times the president will spout off say things yell have a outburst people don't at first know what to do with it then they will just sort of hold it in abeyance see if he comes back to it if he doesn't they'll move on sometimes as I say in the book he'll ask for an agenda item to be pursued to go through the process as it has to at the federal level several agencies are involved to get the proper checkoff, proper approval, that will come back to the White House completely consistent with what he asked for, it's prepared to be decided upon, and he'll look around the room and says, who has the minority position, who disagrees with this? And people will say, literally, what? say, so, well, I- I'm not comfortable. I, I want to give this a relook, or I want to do something else. And that is a shock to the system. A classic example of a workaround, uh, and there's been a good deal of reporting about it uh, in the months afterwards, was the president's tweet about banning those with transgender status from serving in the U.S. military or applying to serve. That sent shockwaves through the West Wing, the Pentagon. People did know what it meant, did know how serious it was, knew that it was a tweet that came in the middle of what they thought was a process to discuss options that hadn't been fully cooked or even half cooked. And yet the president just put out the tweet and then everything sort of had to adapt around it, recontextualize it, put it into some sort of policy function. And that took many, many months. And what ultimately happened bore very little resemblance to that tweet. That's kind of a classic example. But another one is, the travel ban
0: that's where that's where my mind was going you're telling the travel
1: ban is yeah. a living breathing technicolor example of this yeah. that not only did we all live through as a country it was adjudicated several times during the court through the courts and ultimately it was reshaped rewritten redrafted to achieve a result not the original result but a result that was supported by the Supreme Court.
0: The least extreme extreme result is what Reince Priebus told you, right? Out of the eight options. Uh, What
1: what, what several people told me, yes, uh, that it was all haphazard, but there were several options, eight exactly, put before the president. I wish I could get my hands on the paperwork for all eight, but nobody would give that to me, but I have from numerous sources. There were eight. They went with the least restrictive of the eight options, not to describe the one that they picked as, not restrictive or not confusing, even to them. It was highly confusing to them. And for those interested in this topic, I give it pretty rich and vivid detail how confusing it was to them and in in the panicked hours of trying to implement this, how little the administration itself could explain about its wording, its intent, and its practical effect. But that whole year-long process is what my book talks about, what the other book, Bob Woodward's book, talks about, what the op-ed refers to this process of working through a president who doesn't feel very comfortable and is impatient with process.
0: It is what you do. And, and, you, you know, you're setting yourself up for, you know, the, the, Year two is, is almost done, and you're going to have to do a sequel. You, you realize that, Major?
1: Um, well, one of the great things that I love about this book, if I could say so, is we, I struck a hard bargain with my publisher, St. Martin's. I begged them to keep the book open as long as possible. So there are references in the book to the Singapore summit, Kim Jong-un. There are references in the book to the Helsinki summit with uh, Vladimir Putin.
0: You you had a that's reference. A I forget what it. We, we, yeah, very. You you had a reference to something. I'm forgetting now immediately what it was. But you had, you referenced something from July in in the book. Yes,
1: we kept the book open until six weeks before the publication yeah, date.
0: Yeah. No, I noticed that. Which
1: because we knew we, this book was going to be digested in the heat of the midterm campaign cycle, and we wanted to make it as contemporary as humanly possible, and that's exactly what we did. And I. I have to give thanks to to my publisher because it was not easy. That's why there's no blurb on the back of the book. We didn't send the book out for blurb purposes, meaning someone reads the book and writes something complimentary about it, and you put four or five quotes on the back. We skipped that whole process. We just put an excerpt from my own writing at the back of the book and held it open so we could keep track of as many of these things as possible to further... Imp- illustrate the point of the title and the whole rest of the book, which was principally about the first year, but I started moving much of the second year into the prose and into the illustrative examples as I could.
0: Yeah, well, well, it's uh, remarkable storytelling, and I think the only thing you just confessed is that you, you actually – handle the blurb process uh, improperly uh, we, we all know that they don't actually read the book when they blurb it major you know that <laughs> you're going to let that get in the way of a of a good blurb
1: yes, exactly yeah. uh,
0: uh, excuse me, that that's your publisher on the other line major they'd like to talk with yeah. that Okay.
1: let me. I, I my ignorance on full display, my, yeah, my naivete. Yes, yeah. Well, next time. You'll do better next Maybe time. Maybe it's because I read the books I blur. Maybe that's what, I, what I'm disadvantaged by. That is, that is what you're
0: revealing, your, your own accuracy and truthfulness. <laughs> wrong era, Major. This is
1: not the— Totally wrong era. Wrong era. You're a throwback. But I'm reminded of that almost daily.
0: I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, that's what kids are for. <laughs> remind, remind us that we're, we're relics from a, from a previous era. So speaking of a previous era, um, LBJ, and one of the things that yeah. you mentioned uh, about, uh, two, three minutes ago, power. Um, because you write about it, and, and it's an area, um, that I personally am fascinated with having, you know, read every word, literally every word that, uh, Robert Caro ha- has written. Um, in book form, and then you know everything else, and, and read a lot about lbj and and you clearly have as well so so two things one you on, on page nine, you write um, i 've come to believe that with Trump, every encounter is about demonstrating power and balancing power as the dynamic shifts, and as an observer, I, I totally believe that I, I feel like every literally every maneuver is about power, and and there is almost literally including taking. Children from their parents' arms, almost literally nothing that he might not do in order to generate leverage or, or manufacture leverage. But then again, then later you compare Trump and LBJ. And I hadn't thought about some of these. I have thought about comparing Trump and LBJ in terms of power. But, but, you know, you note obviously that Trump does not have LBJ's legislative skills. You know, just, you know, obviously. Um, but you talk about three ways in which they're similar. And, and I had not thought of, Any of these, which doesn't say, you know, that's a low bar, but they interested me, and I'd like you to to tell me more about them. Um, His use of the telephone, his his taking in of information via television, and his using his own physicality. How do you compare Trump's use of power with LBJs?
1: So let's go to the physicality part, Uh, both six foot three. Uh, Because you're a student of Lyndon Baines Johnson, you know that his physical presence, and there are plenty of photographs to... Reveal this and have revealed this. There are plenty of anecdotes about the way Lyndon Johnson used his presence, his size, his sense of a room and occupying the center of gravity in every room to, A, get his point across, B, persuasive, and C, be threatening or some combination of the three. Trump is very much the same way. He has a very acute sense of his own physical presence. He has an acute sense of how he enters a room, how the room responds to him, and how he demands that the room respond to him. Similarly, he is also very receptive to those who have the same sense of physical presence, who tell themselves they can occupy center space in a room, even if Trump is in it. Trump knows they can't, but he likes to see them try. Gary Cohn, this first chief economic advisor in the white house classic example of that so that's the physicality dimension that i think in not every way but in important ways lbj and trump share television lbj was the first president to have three televisions put into the oval office or a study so he could watch the evening news that was his window onto the world how was the network news broadcast informing the country And what was he sensing about that coverage and where he was in relationship to what he saw and what he thought the country was hearing? It was an important place for him to gauge either the success or failure of his presidency. For Trump, it's a little bit different, but they both have a very deep reliance on television. President Trump, as everyone has attested to, and it's not a revelation, watches a lot of television, a high percentage of that from Fox. He oftentimes takes in ideas or initiatives or plans or concepts or constructs or frames or data, sometimes false, sometimes true, from what he sees on television. It becomes a source of his. Lastly, the telephone. I don't think either Trump or LBJ are alike with any other presidents, but they're very similar in this sense. They both use the phone relentlessly, Mm. independently, gauging, Reaction of friends and foes, collecting information, testing hypotheses, and reaching the outside world. The LBJ tapes are monumentally important in terms of understanding the LBJ approach, his psychology, his approach to power. That they're recorded is a gift to all historians. Trump uses the phone more than any president since LBJ oftentimes to the distraction and discomfort of his senior staff. And I think in those three ways, there are some parallels, not precise, but relevant enough to be noted.
0: Major, what's it like to be in the middle of the media pen of a Trump rally?
1: So it's, you're, you're certainly, uh, you're part of the show, meaning there is kind of a vaudevillian aspect to it. For those who don't know what a Vaudevillian show is, there's this sort of call and response of, oh, there's someone who is evil, let's boo that person or that thing or that notion. Um, Or there's someone who in the audience is called out and is uh, a subject of derision, or there's a joke that's played on somebody, and there's this call and response from the audience. There's that aspect of it. There's the showmanship of Trump. There's also a sense, sometimes low level, sometimes a bit more heated, that things might get out of hand. I've never personally experienced that because I spent eight years at Fox News. There is some sense, some reservoir of memory that a lot of Trump supporters have that they think they either recognize me or had a once favorable impression of me. That softens things a little bit for me personally. Um, But you know you're in a different position and you are being, A, described and B, viewed... More hostily than you ever have been before, and that is a completely new experience for me. I've said before that, in the home stretch of the campaign, the last two weeks, uh, to use a football phrase, I kept my head on a swivel uh, as I walked in and walked out of Trump rallies, not, never being quite sure what would happen if there was going to be a haymaker or a battery or something. I just thought that there was a chance that could happen, and for my own protection, my own sense of situational awareness. awareness I kept my head on a swivel and was not texting, not on the phone, until I got to a place I felt uh, a bit more uh, secure.
0: So... He calls you the enemy of the people. I mean, he doesn't single it. Out. He doesn't say you're all the enemy of the people. Except you, Major. You're, you know, you're you're okay. Sometimes not great, not great, but you know, you're okay. Some many people say you're okay, Major. He, he doesn't do that, right? He, you're, you're, are no, you're no. enemy of the we, people we, we,
1: during the campaign. We have never done this since, since he's been president. But during the campaign, we would have conversations, and I never, and lots of reporters have, and you never get that. In a phone conversation with Trump, you get the other side. You get the other power dynamic of aggressive charm and sense of enthusiasm, and like you're sharing a big secret with him. And I write about this to a certain degree in the book that reporters are constantly looking at Trump to try to gauge his reaction. And if you keep an eye on him during press conferences, when he's not the center of attention, he's not talking, he will sometimes move his eyes around the world room catch the eyes of a reporter, wink or nod, or do something to try to tell them that they're favored or that he, he aware, he's aware of them. It's uh, at times effective, at times I think highly manipulative, but it's all about this possession of and projection of power. And I don't think in his waking hours – that is ever far away from this president,
0: but, but when he calls and, and uh, thank you, I appreciate particularly your integration and uh, you 're right, another example of, of power and and it's extraordinary it, i mean it's masterful a use of power. we can argue about the you know the rights and wrongs around it, but it's a it 's an extraordinary display of power essentially twenty four seven but but what I wanted to get at was when he calls you and you know the, the other people who do what you do for a living, the enemy of the people. What's the right way to address that? Should you let it stand? Should you let your work do your talking? How do you protect yourself and, and more broadly, your profession?
1: That's an excellent question, and it is an existential question. And I think when you have an existential question asked, the first and most important thing for you to do is exist. Do your job. Take your emotions out of it. Let your work speak for itself. Make sure everyone hears what has been said. Compare it to the history of rhetoric about the American press, and lots of American presidents have disliked their press coverage, some with more venom than others, but none as venomous as this president. He stands in a class utterly by himself. You make sure that's noted. You make sure that's part of the record, and then you do your work, and There is a side of this going back to this power continuum where the president wants to bait us into an emotional overreaction or an emotional reaction to change the dynamic, to get us more emotionally involved as opposed to journalistically involved. When Mm -hmm. I've counseled my colleagues and when I talk to myself all the time about this, I say, just stick with the job. Our emotions are not part of the job. Our emotions are over here our journalism is dead center and the better our journalism is. And this is a time of testing. The president's called the question and I'm not afraid of the answer. What is journalism? Is it credible? Will it last? I'm ready every single day to take that test on, pass it to the best of my ability and lay both next to each other, not just on a day to day basis or hour to hour basis, but for the long arc of time. And I've said this before, It is something I said before Donald Trump entered the political bloodstream of our country. It's true. It was true before he arrived. It'll be true after he goes, whenever that is. Credible journalism will always outlast incredible politicians.
0: Major, to to close this out, uh, and that's an extraordinary answer, um, uh, pretty powerful stuff in there. Um, To close out this conversation... Um, Your book is titled Mr. Trump's Wild Ride, as we noted. You write about 10 major dramas and traumas from just Trump's first year, although, as you describe, you – uh do bring us a bit up to date and and get into uh you know just a, a month and a half two months ago and as we've already discussed uh there are many new dramas um you know just in the last 24 hours if not the last literally 60 minutes i mean it was just about uh at this point now about 90 minutes ago that the rosenstein news uh hit the wires i mean this question seriously how much more of the fever pitch do you feel we as a nation can take? Can we can we take the, the fever pitch?
1: I right, We can and we have. And one of the things I write about in the book is this presidency, which as I say, is something that thrills and excites and pleases a good number of Americans, horrifies, terrifies, and creates deep anxiety with other millions of Americans, very, very few people are Oh, I'm not really sure what I think about the Trump president. No one, no one really falls into that category. But it has, in addition to all of our emotional reactions, reinvigorated a conversation about the strength and the utility of American institutions, the press corps, the Congress, the courts, the executive branch itself. These are being tested, and we're asking ourselves, are they resilient? What are they made of? What are they here for? What does it mean for these institutions to have existed in this country? What's being done to them or not being done to them? Can we preserve them? Why would we preserve them? What are they about? Who are we about? These words, these concepts, which I would say for a while, we had a kind of uh, attitude of benign neglect about, we don't feel that way anymore individually or collectively as a country, that is a consequence. As I say throughout the book, I'm not saying this presidency is great or terrible. What I say is lots of things are happening, and some of them have already happened because of the Trump presidency, that we are going to look back and say, this was a time when things were different. How did our country respond? And what measurement do we take of our institutions and ourselves as a result?
0: Major, thank you. Thank you for the conversation, and I really enjoyed the book. Thank you. Thank you. That was my conversation with Major Garrett. Want more from Major? A reminder to sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It has bonus insights from him on the question, when does a Trump White House correspondent sleep? My thanks to Major for the conversation and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.